This is Dan Wilson Uncancelled. Let's go. My guest tonight was a hugely successful businesswoman whose decision to medically, medically transition to a man at the age of 42 sadly plunged her life into turmoil. Scott Nugent says her gender dysphoria was encouraged by her psychologist, but her search for happiness and the right body sent her on a downward spiral. She says she learned firsthand the unforgiving truth about how dangerous medical transitioning really can be and wants people to realize that sharing the truth is not transphobic. Now, Scott's medical complications since the transition have tragically included a heart attack, sepsis, a 17-month recurring infection, organ damage, PTSD, and nearly $1 million in medical expenses and loss of her home, car, career, and marriage. Now 49, she identifies as a biological woman that medically transitioned to appear like a male and is courageously using her experience to educate others and improve trans health. She's funded Trans Rational Educational Voices, which is leading the charge in truth, reality, and care for everyone who is or thinks they might be transgender. Her life is now dedicated to stopping children from medically transitioning. This is an issue close to home too with NHS gender clinics coming under scrutiny uh, after there was a 1,700% rise in referrals over the past 10 years accounted for mainly by children and young adults. And Scott joins me now. Scott, so great to have you. Your group is trying to educate politicians and families about the realities and dangers of radical gender activism. Uh, And this is a real challenge for society now, isn't it? Because you were living relatively uh, comfortably as a lesbian woman, uh, but say that you were almost unnecessarily convinced to transition and it's effectively ruined your life in a lot of ways. Very much so. Very much so. You know, at at 42, um, you know, I didn't really fit into society. I might have looked like I, I did, but I was a very alpha female. Uh, that didn't go well. Uh, I was in love with a, a woman who was a, a very, very religious woman. And for years, she told me, you know, in the back of my head, you know, you lock the doors before you go to bed that, you know, men do that. And just years and years of that, like stupid, uh, you know, gender stuff. Um, and then then dealing with her not thinking she was a lesbian or that she's not a lesbian because of religion and, you know, hearing her family kind of, you know, just bombard her with all of that. And uh, just so many years of that, I, I finally just watching Jazz Jennings and, and uh, you know, all the other people that were coming out. And I, you know, thought to myself, heck, maybe I don't fit because I was born in the wrong body. And, uh, you know, went to a psychologist. And the first thing that she said to me, a trans woman, uh, how long have you been dressing like a man? And I was in a very vulnerable situation. Right. Um, you know, my my partner at the time was telling me that I was a man, that she wasn't a lesbian, just very vulnerable. And that's the first thing the psychologist said. Now, if you knew me before I medically transitioned, I was not a butch lesbian. You know, I had female slacks on, all this kind of stuff. But even at 42, as you know, a ball-busting business sales executive, you know, that just broke me down to nothing, to the point where I was in that first meeting and I felt stupid. Like I had been walking through life, just walking past people and, you know, behind my back, they're going, yeah, that's a dude and he doesn't know it. And, wow. and so 
you know, for me, I, I felt stupid. And then the first doctor I went to that was going to get money on me said, have you ever been tested for intersex? Your jaw. And it's just one thing after another. And then you go, oh, my God, there's a fix for me not fitting in. There's a fix. And there's sort of an industry in. around yeah. this. And, oh, and, yeah, so, it's, it's and, and so presumably, Scott, you think that this happening to teenagers uh, could be so damaging to them, given all of the hormones that run wild at this age. Because as you say, you, you were in your 40s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's very damaging for, for children. And here's the truth. We're, we're in a society where we don't want to hear the truth. And we're also in a society where um, all the people that are, are my age, we all saw what happened to kids that came out. We, we saw the, you know, the Mormons being shock therapy and, you know, getting disowned. And, and we all said that, hey, we're not going to do that to our kids. If our kids are, are homosexual, we're going we're gonna to accept them. And so what's happening is, is the trans agenda is, is rolling on the idea that it has anything to do with, with homosexuality. So you have people coming out speaking about uh, the truth, which is, you know, medical transition is plastic surgery. It creates an illusion of the opposite sex. For some people, that would cause, you know, their life to be a little bit easier. But there's nothing life-saving about it. But if they convince you that it is, it unlocks a, an enormous, enormous amount of money. One thing that really, really, really in your country is just flabberg- flabbergasting. You know, Stonewall was about to sign bankruptcy papers in 2015. They were, they were on their way out, right? The next year, they had a 32% year over year. Now, I've been in business. And in my country, if you have a 32% year over year, you... You have the government knocking going, what's going on? You're doing something illegal. And the only thing that they did different that year was to sign on with mermaids. They signed on to push medically transitioning kids. So we have this industry that is an enormous amount of reoccurring revenue. We have business people that know this. We have a society that, that does not listen to anything because they think it has to do with homosexual rights. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that every child that they convince is medically transitioned or, or transgender, that's $1.3 million in a lifetime. Puberty blockers are eight times more profitable when they're prescribed to kids. They go from $14,000 to about $55,000 a year. That's an enormous amount of money. And I know your government pays, pays for your, you know, your health insurance, but let me, re, let me reassure you that when you send our company, Lupron, uh, an invoice, we don't go, oh, yeah, that's for the UK. That's free. I mean, there's money in it. No, indeed. Well, look, Scott, thank you so much for sharing your story. I'd love to keep in touch with you because, of course, this is a debate uh, that we are having in this country right now. Uh, and, of course, Scott, the founder of TRE Voices. Thank you so much. Now, it was one of the biggest events to rock humanity in centuries, but nobody yet has an answer for how exactly the COVID pandemic first came about. There was a time when simply uttering the possibility of the virus leaking from a lab in the Chinese city of Wuhan had you shouted out of town as a conspiracy theorist. Today, though, even the US government, the G7 and the WHO can see there's a strong possibility of that being the case. However, 
The hypothesis has been bizarrely consigned to the dustbin of history. Tonight's guest, journalist and former peer Matt Ridley, has dedicated himself to investigating the lab leak theory and co-authored the brilliant book, Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. Staggeringly, though, Matt revealed recently how he has been stonewalled at almost every turn by the MSM and disparaged by virologists who haven't even read his findings, arguing that the indifference towards COVID's origin is now equal to the world not caring to investigate an accidental nuclear strike on New York. Matt wants to know why the topic remains taboo. And he joins me now to issue a call for answers. And Matt, I mean, just why have the media and the health establishment been so quiet on this? Dan, it's puzzling to me. Um, I think, it, you know, the parallel with, you know, a nuclear explosion that wipes out 20 million people, wipes out the city of New York, New York for example, um, would we really say... We don't know how it started. We'll probably never know. Um, let's not bother to look because it might cause division and difference. But that's effectively what we're doing. We, you know, we're talking it, somewhere between 10 and 20 million people dead as a result of the introduction of a virus into the human species that the more we look into it, um, we can't find a natural explanation for it. With every other pandemic of this kind, we very quickly find out how it happened uh, naturally. And this happened in a city, the only city in the world, which has a lab right in the middle of the city working on exactly these kinds of viruses on a massive scale. And uh, all the circumstantial evidence suggests that this is a hypothesis well worthy of uh, investigation. And my co-author and I, we looked into it in enormous depth. Um, we went down a lot of you know, blind alleys and trails until we could find out what we could from Chinese websites and so on. Uh, and it's, you know, uh, the World Health Organization agrees with us here. It's a serious possibility that it came out of that laboratory. And yet the BBC never covers this story. CNN won't touch it. They booked us and then they dis uh, disinvited us. Um, it's very odd. I really don't fully understand why it's not a bigger story. And Matt, I mean, that is a disgrace, the way that some of those major media organisations reacted to your book, because your book is the opposite of hysterical. It is incredibly well-researched. Uh, you, you, you're not jumping to any conclusions. You're simply putting the facts out there. And the BBC and CNN should be covering this issue. Uh, do you think this comes down to the old issue of, of, of racism and, and the idea that, that it is somehow viewed as being anti-Chinese? Well, the Chinese official spokesmen have been very busy putting it out there that anyone who talks about the origin of this virus as having come out of the laboratory in Wuhan is being a xenophobic racist. And people are so allergic to being called that that they've uh, backed off the story. That is part of it. But I think it's more that there are the, there's, there's a lot of people with a vested interest in it not coming, uh, in it not being investigated. Um, uh, most journalists don't really want to look into this because they can't uh, make, they can't get into China, they can't find out about it, uh, and they were, you know, they are genuinely slightly intimidated by the power of the Chinese state, whether directly or indirectly. The same is true of scientists. Most scientists 
are now depending on uh, directly or indirectly on Chinese funding. They're a bit wary about uh, tweaking the tail of the dragon. Um, and environmentalists are very influential in this debate. And environmentalists want this to be a cautionary tale about the destruction of rainforest and the encroachment on the habitat of bats as being the cause of this. Whereas that story collapses if it turns out that it was the search for viruses that might cause pandemics that caused a pandemic. Um, so it's a very inconvenient story for most people. And there's almost nobody for whom it's a convenient story, which is why someone like me, you know, I'm 64 years old, I'm a freelance, I don't have to worry about, I don't work for any institution, I, I, I can pursue it. But if I was, you know, a mainstream journalist, a mainstream scientist, I'd be looking over my shoulder to worry about what this would do to my career looking into this story. And as you say, you know, we haven't, we're not the extremists here. We're not the ones saying it definitely came out of the lab and we're not speculating. What we do is we present the evidence and say to the reader, here it is, yeah. make up your own mind. Although, by the um, way, when you look at the evidence, I mean, I'm going to be honest, I, I'm convinced it, it came out of the lab. Just one other point I wanted to touch on, Matt, finally, uh, was this idea that you, you talk about, you know, the science establishment and especially scientific journalists. And you say they tend to be cheerleaders uh, for the sorts of research that's done rather than actually critically analyzing uh, the work of, of these scientists. And I think that's, that's a real uh, downfall in the whole system that we have. Yeah, and I, I am one. I mean, that's what my, most of my career was. I was science editor of The Economist when I was 25, you know, and, and uh, most of my career has been writing about science. And yes, it's tremendous fun writing about the good news stories that come out of scientific labs. Uh, and you don't call up Professor X, who's never been in the media, and try and trash his reputation off the bat. You're, you're calling him up because he's discovered something interesting. And so that's what you do most of the time. You're very different in that sense from a political uh, journalist who spends their whole time trying to trip up to uh, make life difficult for the people they interview. Same is true of business journalists. They don't give businessmen an easy ride always. Uh, that's not their job. Um, but in a story like this, where scientists in China have been very, very um, unclear about what exactly they were up to, to put it at its most polite. Um, it requires journalists to say, hang on a minute, the answers you gave us six months ago were not true. Please can we um, uh, have a better look at what you were up to here? And that's just not in the habit of most scientific journalists. It's a very interesting problem, as it were. We need a sort of science critical journalist profession, and we haven't got one. Matt Ridley, fascinating as ever. Please keep up the great work. Of course, we're going to be talking about the lab leak theory on this show until we have evidence of what went down. And it's important that people like you keep on this. So thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. And just quickly to add, Jeremy Hunt and Tom Tugan had have both read the book and think it's great. So, you know, maybe there's a chance the next <laughs> leader will take his theory. <laughs> oh, gosh, don't get me started on Jeremy Hunt and COVID policy because we'll be here for far too long, Matt. But thank you so much. 
Kemi Bainanox, still a bit of an outsider in the race to succeed Boris in number 10, but her no-nonsense approach to governing is winning her a lot of fans, including Michael Gove, who has publicly backed her for the top job. The former Equalities Minister put a robust anti-woke message at the heart of her leadership campaign launch earlier today. Look. The right has lost its confidence and courage. Our ability to defend the free market as the fairest way of helping people prosper has been undermined. It's been undermined by retreating in the face of the Ben and Jerry's tendency, those who say a business's main priority is social justice, not productivity and profit, as we've pandered to pressure groups and caved in to every campaigner with a moving message. And that has made the government agenda into a shopping list of disconnected, unworkable and unsustainable policies. Our democratic nation state is the best way for people to live in harmony and enjoy prosperity has been overridden by the noisy demands of those who want to delegitimize, decolonize and denigrate. And if we don't stand up for our shared institutions, for free speech, due process and the rule of law, then we end up with a zero-sum game of identity politics which only increases divisions when we need to come together. Oh, and by the way, uh, she clearly practices what she preaches. Look at this. Makeshift signs saying men and ladies were put on the gender-neutral toilets at her campaign launch. So, Kemi has certainly won over. Boris's old mate in the media, the general secretary now of the Free Speech Union, Toby Young. So, Toby, why are you backing Badenoch to replace Boris? Well, I'll, I'll take you through my reasoning process, Dan. Um, first of all, I think the next leader has to be someone who isn't tainted by association with the present government and the present prime minister. Um, uh, so there are only four candidates in the eight horse race, I think, who um, who aren't tainted in that way. And they are Tom Tugendhat, Jeremy Hunt, Penny Mordaunt and Kemi. Uh, then the, the second thing I'm looking at is, um, well, who can take on Keir Starmer? at the dispatch box, who can lead the Conservatives to victory over the Keir-led Labour Party at the next general election, which is probably going to be with us in 18 months. Well, I don't think Tom Tugendhat or Jeremy Hunt could successfully do that. I think that narrows it down to two, to Penny and Kemi. I think they're the only two who could really take on and win a general election. Um, uh, but uh, the difference between them is that Kemi is uh, passionately anti-woke. Uh, she's proven her bona fides again and again. She took on the teaching of critical race theory in schools. She's taken on the trans lobby in her capacity as an equality minister. Um, you saw today what she said. She's very pro-free speech. She's very anti-identity politics. Um, so... Penny, unfortunately, I don't think passes that test. Uh, Penny got up at the dispatch box in the House of Commons last year and said uh, trans men are men, trans women are women. And uh, she was allegedly involved in replacing the word or trying to replace the word mother with pregnant person in legislation. So I'm afraid uh, Penny fails the woke test. So we're left with one candidate and that's Kemi Bedenoff. Toby, I mean, I really like Kemi a lot. I have uh, followed her career for a long time. Of course, what you haven't mentioned is she has this fantastically inspirational backstory. You know, this is the absolute opposite of, you know, someone from Eton born with a silver spoon in their mouth. However, what about folk who say, look, she just isn't well known enough uh, to take on Rishi in, in the final two? Because it looks inevitable now, doesn't it, that that uh, whoever is up against Rishi 
uh, is likely to be our next prime minister? Uh, well, I think um, if she does get into the final two and it goes out to the members and it's Rishi versus Kemi, I think Kemi would win. I mean, there was a poll in yeah. Conservative Home of Conservative Party members published earlier today, which showed that Kemi and Penny are essentially neck and neck at the top of that poll. Um, I, th there was a poll in the Daily Telegraph of Daily Telegraph readers, you know, a fairly similar group to the people who'll be electing the next leader when it goes out to the membership. And Kemi won by a huge distance. 32% of Telegraph readers want her to be the next leader. The next, the, the next nearest rival was uh, Penny Mordaunt on 20%. So I think if she gets into the final two, she can beat Rishi. So I think Team Rishi's objective over the next week or so will be to make sure that Kemi doesn't get into the final two. I think they won't want Penny in the final two either. I don't think they'll want Liz in the final two because I think any of those women, possibly even Suella, could beat Rishi if it goes out to the membership. So Rishi's team will be trying to manufacture um, a, a, a rival who Rishi uh, could comfortably beat. And I think he could probably comfortably beat Nadim Zahawi, Jeremy Hunt. Um, uh, but uh, the others I think he might struggle with. I completely agree with you. I mentioned this in the Digest at the top of my show, and it's why there is this real push for the right to unite behind a candidate. But that's not happening. Yeah, I mean, one 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 concern um, about Kemi running as a candidate is that it's going to divide the mm. um, right wing vote within the within the parliamentary Conservative Party, um, and it's kind of split at the moment between Suella Braverman and Kemi Badenoch. Um, uh, but I think that the process will take care of that. I mean, as the candidates get whittled down, as you know, one one or other of them is going to drop out, and as soon as they do, a lot of their supporters are going to move over to the other person's column. So I don't see that that's going to be you know too much of a problem um, in due course. That should that, that's a problem that should solve itself. And Toby, do you agree with me that Rishi Sunak would just be a disastrous PM? You know, he's signed up to the globalist agenda now. He's signed up to the big state agenda. He's signed up to the high tax agenda. And, you know, the, the fact that the establishment are so behind him, I think, uh, waves a lot of red flags. I mean, you know, I didn't particularly like um, uh, what he did as chancellor, though, you know, um, in his defence, I think he was one of the few people in the cabinet um, arguing against um, a draconian lockdown policy um, over the last two and a half years. Uh, so he has that going for him. Um, but notwithstanding, you know, what you think about his record as chancellor, I mean, I think his 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 shortcoming, as far as I'm concerned, is I just don't think he could beat um, uh, Keir Starmer. Um, I mean, he has too many negatives. You know, um, his wife's a non-dom. Um, he had a green card until quite recently. Um, you know, he's worth, what, 700 plus million. Um, uh, he went to Winchester. I mean, I just don't think those sorts of credentials will play well in the red wall. And it's sort of a gift to the Labour Party. Um, you know, he's just a kind of, you know, he'll be portrayed as rich, out of touch, doesn't know what it's like to live in the real world, doesn't really understand the cost of living crisis, um, you know, contributed to that crisis by letting inflation get out of control. So I think for all those reasons, he wouldn't be able to beat, or at least he'd struggle, I think, in a way that I don't think Penny Mordaunt or Kenny Badenoch would to beat Labour at the next general election. Toby Young, Director of the Free Speech Union, backing Kemi Badenoch. Thank you so much, Toby. Dan Wooden here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech 
on Dan Wilson's Tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News. <laughs>